Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We're talking to Professor Constantine Batijan. Is that my pronouncing your name correctly, Constantine? It's a it's a good approximation. Uh, you know, it's it's good enough for astrophysics. <laughs> I, I I don't speak. I speak three fewer languages than you. I know you speak three languages. That's like that's but like I, negative five languages. <laughs> well, it is great to meet you. I know you're legends. You're you're uh, very extremely accomplished, and you're in the small technical college, I believe, uh, Caltech up north in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's right. We're, yeah. <laughs> what were you gonna say? Oh, so I, no, I just said we're accredited. We just passed accreditation. So, like. <laughs> When I was there, the football team would regularly lose to junior varsity high school football teams, but that's not why people go to Caltech, and I think that they've gotten better. And uh, we're joined with a nice crowd on YouTube as well, and that is for good reason because Constantine has some fantastic new results about a planet that shall be called number nine, uh, revolutionary, as the Beatles would say, revolution number nine, planet number nine. Now, first of all, I thought there was a planet number nine. I, I was talking this week with Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, who, you know, at one point claimed uh, that that, there, that Pluto was not the ninth planet. So what, what's the current status? Where do you come down on this eternal battle? Is Pluto a planet? Is Pluto not a planet? I mean, you know, I... Like, I just... I don't care that much. You know, <laughs> that, that's... Like... I, I'm pretty orthogonal to the whole de debate. My viewpoint on all these things is that, um, you know, it's got a mass, it's got a radius, you know, it's got r real physical quantities uh, that that you can really talk about and, and kind of that are actually interesting. Pluto actually geologically is very interesting as well. That said, like, does it, you know, if I was to choose, does it arise up to the kind of concept of a planet? Of, I mean, my sense is, of course, not. Right? Pluto is uh, rather unaware of its own orbit. Right? I mean, I, I tend to think about planets as things that are uh, that are sufficient gravitational drivers in the dynamics of a planetary system, where if you remove it, something changes dramatically right if you remove pluto nothing will change and in any case the story of how pluto acquired its planetary status is a really remarkable one right pluto was in initially mistaken for the seven earth mass planet x that uh that was predicted at the time and upon its discovery, uh, its mass was revised downwards to one Earth mass. Of course, nobody could, uh, nobody really knew how to measure mass. Uh, you need a satellite. And when satellite, when Charon was discovered in 1978, it was like, whoa, you know, this thing is, you know, really quite, uh, quite tiny. So, so yeah, it's a really, uh, I think, much more interesting than the question of definition about what is a planet, what is not, is actually the historical arc, right? The, uh, the Parseval Lowell story of, of looking for planet X is a fascinating uh, piece of kind of astronomical history and, and how that linked to the discovery of Pluto is really f phenomenal. Yeah, all the uh, all the all the planets, at least beyond the no ones known since antiquity. I think I heard that Galileo accidentally 
could have discovered. Here's Galileo. Con- Constantine, someday you'll have a sock puppet too, a finger puppet too. But this is Galileo, uh, <laughs> the first mariner of the skies using telescopic a- aid. And he had some success with observing planets, as you know, with Jupiter and Saturn, he thought. And he actually encrypted his findings. You you may be able to explain this better than me, but he would write, you know, in, in like backwards handwriting and, and he would write in, in, in like rhymes and limericks. One of them was the um, the fifth planet an altitude is threefold and and that was of course he couldn't resolve the rings of Saturn nowadays it seems like people wouldn't sit on a discovery of planet nine so are you yeah. are you are you burying the news are you hiding obfuscating that you've seen planet nine or what are we looking at with this fantastic new paper that I'll show on the screen? it's all an anagram right if you just <laughs> <laughs> no 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 uh, so so we of course, you know, it would be a uh, an immediate. Uh, it would be an immediate announcement the moment we, uh, or I think anybody else for that matter, discovers Planet Nine. But the observational search for Planet Nine has generically been going horribly. And this is not because uh, you know we've collected zero data. It's been horribly because, of course, when you when you're looking for one object, it is going horribly until you discover it, and then it's going great. Right. So, um, you know, in parallel with the kind of observational arc of, of looking for Planet Nine, we're always pushing the theoretical framework forward. And this is kind of the latest in our, um, you know, in our program to make the Planet Nine models maximally realistic. We spent uh, some time about three, four years ago, actually going the opposite way, developing models that are maximally simplistic to get an analytical handle on the on the dynamics, understand it better. Um, but here we are doing the opposite. We we have decided to go and basically look at you know the state of the art that we had from a couple of years ago. And say, okay, what what is missing? Right. What is missing from the theory as it stands right now? And the answer here is simple to summarize. We uh, often in our models treat uh, and this is not just us, like everybody does this. Right. Everybody. If you're worried about the solar system, you treat the solar system as the entirety of the universe. Right. (laughs) As far as your simulation is concerned. Right. You've got the sun at the center and you draw a sphere of, you know, whatever, 10,000, 20,000 AU uh, around it. And things that leave that sphere are just deleted from the simulations and never heard from again. Um, And, you know, importantly, nothing ever comes into that sphere either. That's not really true. Right. The solar system did not form in isolation. It formed in a cluster of stars, just like most stars do. And uh, so we decided to really take a closer look at this. Um, what are the consequences of properly modeling the early evolution of, of the solar system? And the answer is that um, early in its sort of during the first few million years of the sun's evolution in its birth cluster, uh, Jupiter and Saturn form, eject uh, a bunch of material, but some of that material gets trapped in a quasi-spherical cloud around the sun, uh, what we now call the inner Oort cloud. And if planet nine is not there, it's not really a big deal. The inner Oort cloud just sits there forever. But if planet nine is there, and I, 
I think it is, uh, then its gravity acts to re-inject some of that material back into the distant Kuiper belt. So Hi, Brian, we're what right. The topic of this room? Oh, sorry about that. <clears throat> Hi, guys. Uh, on Clubhouse, sorry. We got people on Clubhouse. We're talking about Planet Nine. Maybe, Catherine, I'll make you a moderator. Can you change the name or no? Is that impossible? All right, we're talking Planet Nine, so I'll take questions for uh, Professor Constantine Batijan of Caltech later on, but it's a fascinating discovery uh, that is being announced. We're talking about the impact of, uh, of objects beyond the Kuiper Belt, right? We're talking about Kuiper Belt or beyond Kuiper Belt objects, uh, Constantine. Yeah, these, these are really things beyond the Kuiper Belt. I mean, these are, I mean, to give some scale, some sense of scale, right? Neptune's at 30 astronomical units, meaning it's 30 times as far away from the sun as is the Earth. Um, you know, Pluto's at 40, roughly speaking. Um, the objects that inform, uh, from which we infer the existence of Planet Nine, these are things uh, that are hundreds of AU, right? Hundreds of times as far away from the sun as is the Earth. We're now talking about re-injecting things back into the solar system from thousands, right? This is not quite flirting with the um, re the conventional Oort cloud, like where Oort cloud comets come from, because that's yet another order of magnitude uh, further out. That's, you know, 20,000, 50,000 AU. That's kind of old, right? Starting to flirt with, you know, a quarter of the way to the next star. Um, this is still, you know, closer in, but... As it turns out, if Planet Nine is there, inner Oort cloud material gets re-injected into the outer solar system and mixes in with the Kuiper belt. Hmm. Now, that pollution of the distant Kuiper belt by this Oort cloud material is something we hadn't really ever modeled before. And when we account for this effect in, new, uh, in these new models, Planet Nine... Uh, becomes somewhat more eccentric. The best fit planet nine becomes marginally more eccentric, which is important for the observational search. After all, if something is a little bit more eccentric, its aphelion is a little bit further away, the thing is a little dimmer. Uh, I don't actually expect this to change our observational strategy by by a long shot by any account, but, uh, but this does contribute uh, to kind of the limits that we place with the observational search. I had uh, Professor Avi Loeb on the podcast talking about his controversial theory of Oumuamua as originating as an extra solar piece of technology, not just from uh, from a solar system uh, formation in its own Kuiper belt or its own Oort cloud. Um, how polluted or how, how full of traffic is the Kuiper Belt? Is it like Los Angeles right about now? Or, or, or is it, uh, you know, contrary to the impression of it kind of being jam-packed with debris and icebergs and so forth? How, how, how dense in population is the Oort Cloud uh, and uh, Kuiper Belt, rather? Yeah, I mean, if I was, I don't know, I think the better, the better analogy than Los Angeles now would be like middle of New Mexico during COVID when nobody's nobody's driving. I mean, it is it is astonishing actually how, uh, despite there being you know whatever number of objects there are, the space between them is huge. Mm. Now the question that you can immediately ask is so like that. I guess where I'm going with this is the Kuiper Belt at the scale of objects that we usually care about, 
right? So things that are, you know, 100 kilometers across or 10 kilometers across, it's completely collisionless, right? Those particles will never come into contact with one another. They, they'll never see one another. It's cumulative gravity is negligible. Um, as far as the question of, you know, what about the amount of material that gets injected into the Kuiper belt through from the Oort cloud. There, we can actually make an estimate, and I think it's on the order of a percent of an Earth mass over mm -hmm. the age of the solar system. You might say, well, that's not, that doesn't sound like very much, but the Kuiper belt itself is about 1% of an Earth mass cumulatively. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a competing mass scale for, um, for if you were to, to kind of compare bona fide, you know, Kuiper belt objects that are that are real, you know, things that have been scattered out by Neptune and things that have been re-injected back. If I'm not mistaken, Kuiper, Jerd or Gerald, uh, or, uh, Kuiper, he actually postulated it, and not in the context of early solar system dynamics, but really as a form of dark matter. Isn't, wasn't that correct that there was some connection between the Kuiper belt and a proposed a resolution of the dark matter conundrum that most of the matter we see via uh, its gravitational effects is non-luminous and non-interacting. And it's thought that this mm -hmm. Kuiper belt could provide some of that. But as you're saying, it's incredibly low density, right? It's totally insufficient. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you right. know, yeah. It's pathetic, right? Yeah. The Kuiper belt is pathetic. I scoff every time I think about the Kuiper belt. That's just how <laughs> pathetic. What about the Oort cloud? Is the Oort cloud any more, uh, you know, of a, of a force to be reckoned with? A little bit, yeah. So the, the what's interesting is, at least for the Kuiper belt, we have me measures of mass that that are dynamic. Like you can use telemetry of spacecraft to put limits on the amount of mass out there, and that's kind of where you get the sort of one percent of an Earth mass or something like that. With um, the classical Oort cloud, our understanding comes from you know here comes a comet with a period of a hundred thousand years let's now <laughs> estimate how many there are in total and so if you do the numbers you get about five earth masses in total but if it was 0.5 you you could still make the numbers work. so there's sort of an order of magnitude uncertainty but the best uh the best fit number for the classical Oort cloud is you know five earth masses the inner Oort cloud a little bit less now, if there were to suddenly be, you know, someone who's even more um, vehemently opposed to the Kuiper Belt and even the Oort cloud, and this uh, omnipotent being completely vaporizes and, and annihilates all the material of the Kuiper Belt and the Oort cloud, would we ever have any effect here on Earth? Would it make life safer on Earth than avoid the cometary disaster that befell the dinosaurs some 66 million years ago? Yeah. Um, so great question. You know, for the, this actually ties beautifully into the story of how the Kuiper belt was postulated in the first place, which is different from what Kuiper said. If you read Kuiper's actual original paper, it's very speculative. It's kind of like, I'm not saying there's a Kuiper belt. I'm just saying <laughs> like maybe there might be one. I don't know. I don't know. You never know. Uh, that's kind of the effect, the extent of uh, certainty. But in the 80s, um, as computers became faster and people like Martin Duncan uh, started doing simulations of, in fact, the very question that you're asking about, the cometary flux, um, 
you know, it became clear that the solar system would run out of Jupiter family comets on a timescale much uh, shorter than the age of the solar system. So the fact that we have a cometary flux, you know, which where it looks like it's coming from Jupiter, means that Jupiter itself is sourcing comets from somewhere further away. And these are things that come from, indeed, the Kuiper Belt, particularly the scattered disk population of the Kuiper Belt, um, is one where Neptune will occasionally just scatter things out of the solar system and they're gone forever, or will scatter things inwards. And then the giant planets sort of play soccer with these uh, you know, pieces of debris until they reach Jupiter's orbit. And once they, uh, once uh, Jupiter injects the material into the inner solar system, we see, you know, activation of coma, we see real, real comets that we then uh, oftentimes refer to as Jupiter family comets, but they're really sourced from the Kuiper Belt. So if we destroy the Kuiper Belt, uh, we will remove one source of cometary bombardment. If we destroy the Oort cloud, we will just, you know, remove another source of cometary bombardment. We'll remove the Oort cloud comets. Um, but will we remove all impacts? No. No, of course not. Because uh, many of them are, uh, in fact, sourced from the asteroid belt. Right? The asteroids, due to radiative effects, drift into resonances with Jupiter, uh, get into the Kirkwood gaps, basically, get their eccentricities excited until they cross Mars, and then Mars shoots them onto Earth. So meteorites follow this chaotic route uh, to the Earth's orbit. Um, so as much as I would, I think it's a good idea to destroy the Kuiper Belt, it won't make the you know life safe for us. Uh, so we're talking to uh, Professor Konstantin Batijan, who as, as, as hilarious as he is brilliant, you may have seen him as I did first on 60 Minutes. What was that, five, six years ago? Your work on with Mike Brown and uh, Bill Whitaker, I remember poking around. I'm, I'm, that was about 2017, 2016? It feels like it was about... 59 minutes ago i mean really uh it, it's uh, it's amazing how rapidly time passes particularly you know like everybody knows about time dilation due to gravity but time dilation due to covid is really profound yeah um, so and, yeah, and kids too to... you're you're a father and you must know that the longest period of time is the time between dinner time and bedtime for any child or any parent uh has to endure that is where time yeah. dilation really kicks in doesn't it Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we, yeah, we, well, we, we're all doing our best. <laughs> so back in uh, January, I mean, at that time in, in 2016, we were, uh, I, w I became aware of you from work that you did with Mike Brown, who is the Pluto killer. He was your thesis advisor, right? Yeah. Back in the day. Back yeah, in the day. Um, yeah. Back in the day. It's again, you know, I, I now teach, uh, some of the classes I took, uh, <laughs> as a grad student and I just, you know, uh, I used to take great kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, in a tongue in cheek way, talk about how when I took this class, you know, everything <laughs> was different. But these days, it's like when I took this class, really, everything was different. All right. You know? So uh, just a few years ago. Yeah. yeah unbelievable. I mean, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, in that paper or in that time, you were talking about Sedna and Sedna like object. What the heck is Sedna? What happened to it? How come I don't hear about it? Was it just one of these flash in the pan Hollywood, you know, flings that that come and go like uh, like a comet in the Oort cloud? Right? What is Sedna? Is it still there? And what's a Sedna-like object? 
It's 100%. It's definitely still there. I'm feeling its gravity. Well, I'm not really feeling its gravity, <laughs> but I'm feeling its uh, quintessence right now. Uh, yeah. Look, Sedna, it was a huge discovery at the time. It was the first uh, truly clear indication that the solar system is not done, right? That, that there's something really remarkable that's going to be uh, that's that's hiding beyond the observational uh, frontier even of the Kuiper belt itself. Um, now the Kuiper belt, when it started getting mapped out, people were very excited about all of the dynamical structure that it exhibits. That study helped, uh, that kind of collective study helped you know, really rewrite the story about how the solar system evolved in its first 10 to 100 million years. But Sedna was something different altogether. So when Mike and company this uh, discovered it i guess back in 2003 or 2004 mm-hmm. um i actually remember hearing about it um yeah. I, don't know, I was in high school at the time but this yeah. uh this dude in my like history class was like bro they found planet x <laughs> <laughs> um so um yeah so Go. like <laughs> um, yeah, so, so what's weird about Sedna is that, is that while the vast majority of Kuiper Belt objects are easy to understand with the current markup of the planets that, that we know and love, uh, Sedna never really interacts with anything, right? It's, it's perihelion, its closest approach to the sun is more than twice as far away from the sun as mm-hmm. is Neptune. Mm-hmm. So it never directly, it never really sees Neptune's you know, it never sees Neptune as a individual particle, if you will. It only sees the kind of orbit averaged quadrupole potential of Neptune or anybody else for that matter. So it just kind of sits there. Now, if you see that, you might say, okay, uh, that's kind of weird. And the reason it's weird is that vast majority of long period orbits were scattered out by Neptune, but if they get scattered out by Neptune because gravity is conservative, they always have to come back to where they started from. So all of these objects are just kind of tethered to Neptune. Sedna is not. It was the first tip of the iceberg of a population of bodies that look like they've been pulled away uh, from, from the giant planets and are now uh, just sort of doing their own thing. Now, the entire Planet Nine story was constructed from, you know, uh, what, at least one of the original arguments was to say, look, if you look at the distant solar system, there is clustering. What we see now in the current data set, which is really quite, in my opinion, profound, is that the clustering is much stronger among these objects that have been strongly pulled away from Neptune, these detached Kuiper Belt objects. Um, the objects that are attached to Neptune are kind of all over the place. And uh, to give ourselves just a little bit of credit, uh, even back in 2016, we wrote about this in the, in the first paper about how only the dynamically stable objects uh, should cluster. And the fact that that's kind of been um, you know, reflected in the data is pretty, is pretty exciting. Of course, it's no, you know, it's not like, reason to you know call call the game and say we're we're done uh but it's it's certainly going into the right direction yeah it's it's fascinating and i want to point out you know what you do 
Um, do you think of your how do you think of yourself uh, besides being a father, husband, musician, you know, uh, world famous, sixty minutes superstar? How do you uh, think of yourself? Are you uh, should people think of you as a guy with a telescope, you know, looking out at the sky, or or is it a scientist looking? into a computer what do you focus mostly on because the paper i'm showing on the screen is a lot of you know it looks like a lot of spirograph activity going on over here so to what extent can we have confidence in in the existence of this object if you're not seeing it through a telescope uh yeah that's a great question and look uh i actually think this is a this hits on an important uh topic because oftentimes the planet nine story kind of gets over amplified both ways right mm -hmm. uh there's kind of there's a some pleasure in in kind of proclaiming that planet nine is just oh my god it's so there it's just you know it's gonna be it, it, any minute now or <laughs> you know or like planet nine is dead right planet nine really is in some sense uh you know a little bit like schrodinger's cat where where it has a wave function of being of being in existence until we we measure it and that um that probability really hinges on uh on a few different things it hinges on how certain are we that the first of all how certain are we on that the patterns that we see in the night in the distant solar system really are you know there now you can that this has been a subject of of some debate Okay, in the last uh, you know few months, including, um, but you know the way there's and there's indeed multiple ways to do the uh, the statistical analysis. Um, the kind of analysis that we've done suggests a false alarm probability of sort of one of one in five hundred, right? So that kind of point two percent. Um, the the other thing that I should note is in all of these models. All that really happens at the end of the day is all, all that we can say is that there is some external gravity, and so we can assign a mass and an orbit to to you know the external perturber, right? Mm -hmm. Whether like the fact that this is a planet is just us making it up, right? We we think that a planet is the most reasonable source of a five Earth mass object on uh, on such a gravity, but in principle the orbits would uh, the calculations would work as well if this was a five earth mass burrito or you know a five earth mass tissue like just really anything that has five earth mass uh, you know that orbits on the right orbit would do the job um now finally to answer your question about you know what whether or not i use a telescope um you know, i've gotten involved with observations uh, as part of this project because you know that's that's been something uh, that you know I've, I've been sort of had the pleasure of uh, of doing together with Mike. Mike is a real ninja at the telescope, uh, right? He's f truly truly phenomenal. But um, you know, predominantly, I kind of lead the theoretical side of the Planet Nine project, whereas he leads the more observational uh, side of the project. So um, the, we've we've over the years diffused our duties uh, quite a bit but uh but you know that 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 division is still to an extent there um i also i'll be honest i i really enjoy theory a lot more mm -hmm. uh, i find a real thrill in doing theoretical work um that i i, I just don't 
maybe resonate with as much when uh, we're at the telescope and staying up all night and not drinking, you know, like <laughs> staying up all night and at a party is way more fun than staying up all night <laughs> at, a, at a telescope. Or performing in your, in your band. What's the name of your band? The name of the band is the seventh season. We we're going to have, uh, you know, we're going to be, um, yeah, the, we we're already kind of like the the most overrated band, even though there is no uh, critical acclaim. Uh, but it's going to be even more true in the coming in the coming I months. I can't wait. I hope to see catch you guys live, and maybe I'll get a guitar pick thrown my way. The last thing I want to say about what you do on your daily basis <clears throat> revolves around you know this notion that oh, planets in the solar system, it's kind of old hat, Newton solved everything. If it doesn't involve Einstein or Schrodinger, who cares? It's not really cutting edge. Talk about the tools that you do use, the simulations, the supercomputer. Talk about the tools that you use and where we're going technologically to hopefully unravel the mystery and the existence of it and maybe even observe it directly or maybe by a spacecraft or something. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm so glad you brought this up because this was my perspective as well before I got involved with solar system research. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it ties in very uh, nicely with the with the common misconception that 20th century physics and 21st century physics is basically just two things. Like it's either GR or, you know, or, or quantum mechanics yeah. uh, in some advanced or like particle physics. Um you know, one of the, I think one of the coolest advances that unfolded at the end of the 20th century was really chaos theory coming into its own and becoming a big part of, of natural science. As it turns out, the solar system is one of the best laboratories where, where long-term chaos manifests. So, and planet nine is a, and planet nine, the outer solar system itself, is not only not immune from chaotic dynamics, all of this story is chaotic dynamics, uh, right? So when we are doing these simulations, we're not, you know, setting mv squared over r equal to gmm over r squared and canceling the m's <laughs> and, and one of the r's, right? I mean, this, uh, this involves doing uh, long-term simulations that are, that are based on symplectic maps, uh, which, basically only give you a statistical estimate at the end of the day of what types of dynamical evolution planet nine can instill because each you know each trajectory is just some uh, like chaotic uh, you know whisper if you will of, of all of, of, of some chaotic sampling of of the different dynamical modes so um, at the end of the day you have to go if you're for this problem especially you have to go to the supercomputer um and at times just to just to basically have enough realizations of the model to uh really understand what's going on so uh yeah it's it's a it's a remarkably um advanced you know and, and really intriguing field now when it comes to observations themselves right that's a field where um you know the recent advances in machine learning have played a huge you know role as well right i mean the way that the way you do image analysis these days is not clyde tombo style where you're trying to blink a couple of images and, and note something that moved it's it's ai doing that for you 
and it's and all of these advances truly have been interlinked. So uh, we're getting some questions. Just a reminder, we're talking with Professor Constantine Batijan of California Institute of Technology, a small technical college on the outskirts of northern Los Angeles County. And uh, we're discussing some of the implications of new simulations, a new paper that came out just yesterday, I think. It was embargoed, uh, and uh, and I got to really lucky break to get hold of Constantine through various means and modalities of communication. But we're talking about these really massive simulations and the tools and techniques of a theoretical planetary scientist, a, a, uh, a uh, person who's working at the boundaries of what technology can do now. And people are asking questions, which I think, you know, you, you essentially answered, but you don't know what this object could be. It could be, someone's asking, could it be a a black hole, a primordial black hole, somehow lurking on the outskirts of the solar system. And actually, none uh, none other than Edward Witten has proposed such uh, possibilities, maybe not for Planet Nine specifically, or for this object specifically, but that there may be the, the possibility of a black hole. So you may actually get, Constantine, you may actually get to have a brush with black holes and GR and all sorts of things that, that people would assume you might envy. But yeah, can you say something about that? Is there... Is there much uh, excitement about that or is that kind of just a fanciful notion that isn't real? Well, look, I mean, so like I said, we don't know what it is. It could be anything as long as it's five Earth masses. A primordial black hole, of course, you know, comes in a whole spectrum of, of masses, uh, as, as you know uh, very well. So that's that's one possibility. And this has been pointed out in the literature, not by us, but uh, by... Unwin and and Schultz, I believe, or or maybe I'm getting the authors uh, reversed, but uh, yeah, this has been this is one uh, you know idea that's out there. What's what's really remarkable here is is just how different um, at the detailed level this whole calculation is from the one of Neptune. Right, Neptune mm -hmm. was discovered by uh, seeing the gravitational effect it had on Uranus and deriving its existence that way. In the case of Neptune, all you could really derive was its, its on-sky location and, and kind of the immediate on-sky path because Uranus and Neptune were in conjunction in 1846 when Leverrier was doing the calculation. So uh, in fact, Leverrier and, and Adams both got the orbits of Neptune and the mass of Neptune wrong, but they got on-sky location right. The Planet Nine story is the polar opposite of that. You can you actually can calculate the mass and the um, and the orbit with some you know reasonable degree of of certainty. But one thing you cannot know is where it is on its orbit and what it is. Mm. Yeah, actually, Dan Green is a colleague of mine here at UCSD. Uh, was commenting on Twitter yesterday. He was actually in Clubhouse a few minutes ago about uh, these notions like the, what the greatness of Einstein was is that he had to accept things like, uh, you know, relativity, but then overthrow it in favor of, you know, uh, giving up the notion of simultaneity uh, and, and instead focusing on things like the inter invariant interval. Uh, but whereas Leverrier, I think that's how you said his name, right? Uh, he proposed, he discovered uh, Neptune based on the, uh, the, the perturbations to Uranus's orbit, but then he tried to do something and predict, uh, the aberrations of Mercury 
based on the existence of Vulcan. You want to talk a little bit about how a brilliant scientist uh, can get things spectacularly right and then try to use that same technology, same tool and get things, you know, blunderlingly wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Mercury, the transits of Mercury, uh, the measurements of transits of Mercury became uh, quite precise by the mid 1800s. So, uh, um, you know, in parallel with the advancements of celestial mechanics at the time, it became clear that the orbit of Mercury is processing, right, in a rotating uh, for somewhat faster, and that's 43 arc seconds per century faster than uh, would be predicted by, by the Newtonian uh, law of gravity. So, there are two ways to resolve this problem. One is modify the law of gravity, right? That's, uh, that's certainly one way, which of course ended up to be the correct answer. And the other one is to, um, is to fix it. And the way you fix it is you put a planet close to the surface of the sun, such that the sun basically becomes effectively oblate. And that uh, can give you a, uh, a degree of precession that, um, that can advance Mercury's perihelion by the right amount. That was Leverrier's uh, prediction. Of course, it turned out to be wrong, but you know, to give it to give Leverrier full credit, right? That mystery, like recognizing that mystery and solving that mystery, and uh, was was part of that part of the pyramid, really, that led to the success of uh, you know of relativity. Because I think mm -hmm. by by 1915, it had become somewhat clear that um, planet Vulcan was really not there. So, so this mystery was really amplified by uh, by Leverrier's work. All right. Uh, reminder: We're talking to uh, Professor Constantine Batijan. Earlier this week, we talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson, and in the past, I've talked to Avi Loeb and Sarah Seeger. And you know, it would be really dereliction of my duty as a as a YouTube. Uh, creator, as we called, as we discussed earlier today, if I didn't ask you about these three people, Tyson uh, and and also Avi Loeb and also Sarah Seeger, whose episode will come out hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, she, let's work backwards. Sarah Seeger and, and collaborators have a proposal that there might be an, uh, a life um, yeah. evidentiary piece of uh, molecule molecular phosphine which can be indicative of a biological process operating on the clouds of Venus. So first of all, what, how do you react to that? Um, what do you make of that? Uh, I know it's not your field and it's dangerous, but as a, even as a layperson, if you want, what, how do you react to that? What are your thoughts on that particular controversial new discovery? Uh, so my my understanding of this, uh, and again, I've I only follow I've only followed that the phosphine story kind of uh, peripherally. Um, now, my understanding was that when that um, story came out, right, there was an immediate kind of outcry about how the data, you know, can be fit in a different way. And, and that's a really important, uh, you know, it's really important to be skeptical for, for discoveries like these because they're, they're so uh, monumental. And so the pendulum kind of swung into the phosphine is not there, but uh, my understanding was that a recent reanalysis of some older data actually looks, you know, somewhat more favorable. Again, my, I, I'm not an expert in, in phosphine. In any case, my, my 
overall sense is that life is just a contaminant on an otherwise interesting planetary surface. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, where it's, it's really quite exciting that uh, such work is being carried out. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, if, if there is a hint in the data, if something interesting is going on, it's, it's always, of course, worthwhile to, you know, to ask the question, can, what are the pathways to produce uh, this molecule naturally, right? What are the geological pathways to do this? And, you know, are the geological pathways reasonable if they are, if there are none, or if they are, you know, <laughs> if they require assumptions that are not, uh, you know, not particularly, how should I say, um, not particularly realistic, then, you know, you, you go to life as a, as an alternative hypothesis. It's, it's interesting stuff, right? Yeah. Big stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, next going, you know, reverse chronologically, mm-hmm. I had, uh, I had Avi Loeb on and he has this yeah. theory, which, uh, which is that not only is there life in the galaxy, but there's technological life and advanced technological life that can send a solar sail powered, uh, spacecraft to our solar system for purposes we don't know. Uh, but this is uh, his contention at very high confidence level of it not being a fluke. In other words, the yeah. confidence that he ascribes to it is over 90%, which is not, you know, they're going to call up Stockholm. As, as the joke goes, you know, with three sigma, they'll invite you to give a seminar, but they won't pay you back. You know, at five sigma, they'll pay for your your hotel for one night. And then seven sigma, they'll take you to Stockholm uh, to win one of these things, which, you know, maybe someday you'll you'll have on uh, around your neck. But but let me ask you, Constantine, what do you make of Avi Loeb's theory? Not not him personally, but but the theory itself on its own merits. Well, actually, I know Avi really well. Uh, I was, my office was when I was a postdoc. My office was across the hall from uh, from Avi's. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Avi, of course, has a, a remarkable amount of you know a remarkable amount of energy. And uh, you know, I remember he he ran into my office at one point and said, you know, I have figured this out. Like I was, I was you know, whatever cooking, I think he was saying that either he was cooking Thanksgiving dinner or he was helping his wife cook Thanksgiving mm-hmm. dinner. And he's like, I figured out that at one point the entire universe was room temperature. I mean, of course it, <laughs> it, it was, right. He's like, imagine if it, like, imagine living in, in that universe is everything is habitable. Just everything you go outside. It's just, it's just room temperature, man. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just nice. It's like, I don't know. It's like the South of France in, <laughs> you know, in April. Right. Just, uh, so, you know, Avi has, has cool ideas. I, I think, you know, my, I, I personally ascribe to, um, the, you know, the notion that life really should be a, uh, a hypothesis of last resort because it's one to which uh, it's one that kind of opens up a huge can of worms. Let me also say one more thing. The question of whether or not there is life elsewhere in the galaxy, for example, is a completely boring question, okay? Of course there's life elsewhere in the galaxy, right? We, at this point, know that extrasolar planets are super common, right? There's just, there's, in my view, uh, 
negligible amount of probability, okay, ascribed to the notion that somehow the Earth is a unique uh, spot in in all of cosmos where where life uh, emerged and everywhere else it didn't, right? The question of whether or not it's there, I think, is is one that's answered. It's there. The, the real interesting question is where's the closest life? You know, where's the closest life? Is it uh, in the icy satellites? Um, and to give credit where it's due, uh, this, is, this was something, you know, I, I changed my entire thinking of this as a consequence of conversation with Mike, you know, Mike Brown, because he was uh, the one who pointed this out to me and it, I thought it made a lot of sense, right? Like, you know, is it, Europa, are the oceans of Europa teeming with life or do we have to travel, you know, a hundred parsecs before we uh, encounter the first, uh, the first life form? Now, with the question of Oumuamua is, of course, an interesting one, uh, but let's not forget that the entire story there is coming, like all of this excitement is coming from a question, a measurement of, you know, a light curve which goes up and down stochastically and non-gravitational acceleration, right? So that's where the, all, that's, that's the foundation of, of all of that debate. I think it's, it's important to, to, keep, to keep that in mind, right? I think uh, it, you know, one way or another, we'll learn a lot more with uh, LSST coming online soon. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to finish up in the next few minutes so uh, we can get some some alcohol into Constantine. He's had a busy week. He deserves it. But there's a very important question coming in from Christian Reddy, whose show you should go on called Launchpad Astronomy. My good friend Christian is asking a very important question. What kind of bass guitar is behind you? Ah, yeah. That, so that's an Ibanez. Uh, that's an Ibanez. It's, in fact, that one is not mine. It's uh, from the bass player in, in the band. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he made the mistake of leaving it in my office um, and then COVID happened. So I've, uh, I've appropriated it. It's uh, a <laughs> pandemic yeah, bass. Yeah. That's right. That's, <laughs> this is my pandemic bass because my bass is in um you know is locked away in a room that i have no longer i can't get into as long as there's covid so uh yeah well you'll have to wait to play the music of the spheres uh as covid is on the wane hopefully things will uh lighten up there in los angeles and pasadena my old stomping grounds uh, last couple of uh, last question for me before we turn it to the audience. There's a bunch of people, over 110 on YouTube. Ask people to subscribe and leave a comment if you'd like to see more like this, and you'd like to see more of Constantine. You can find him on the web at his name, Constantine Batijin. It's a little bit hard, but I put it up there. His Twitter is K Batijin, and it's B A T Y G I N. And uh, not too many people have a name of my favorite alcohol in their name, but Constantine certainly does. Uh, so, Constantine, I want to know where are we going in this field? Is it going to take machine learning, artificial intelligence? You know, wh what what's the next direction as a non-telescopic astronomer? Where do you what are you most excited about um, uh, coming in? More data? You mentioned the Rubin Observatory, LSST. What are you most excited about as the next technological? or scientific breakthrough in your specific field? Yeah, okay, so for the solar system, for the outer solar system, of course, Vera Rubin is it. Uh, not meaning that's the only thing, but it's you know gonna be a huge revolution. For, uh, I spent 
quite a bit of time uh, doing work on extrasolar planets, right? That's a field that's very healthy and it's kind of continues to, um, you know, gain, gain traction. I think that's another, uh, there, you know, things like James Webb coming online, uh, as well as a whole range really of, of missions, many of you know, space telescopes, many of them in Europe, like Plato, um, you have coming online and providing uh, swaths of new data. The generic story with exoplanets is that they keep, you know, of course, surprising us, right? There's <laughs> stuff time after time, uh, you know, they keep disproving what we thought was right about planet formation, which is great, right? Planet formation is not a field, uh, it's not a theory with a lot of predictive power. It only kind of has retrodictive power. Um, and finally, you know, I've I've recently gotten involved in in trying to understand how the satellites uh, form this, the Galilean satellites because, as you mentioned, Galileo found them about four centuries ago. To this day, we don't actually know very well how uh, how they form. Like the, mm. the basic question of why they are there is is an exciting one, and it's going to only get more exciting in the next uh, decade because. There's things like Europa Clipper going to Europa. There's uh, Dragonfly flying to Titan, which is the biggest moon of Saturn. There's an ESA mission called JUICE, which is going to go and study Ganymede, which is the most massive satellite of Jupiter in excruciating mm. detail. So whenever you have um, stuff like this happen, right, more better telescopes, direct you know missions that tell you something about the, geo the geophysics of um, you know, these bodies, it always brings together a wealth of new data, which crushes the old models and uh, allows people like me to get, you know, excited and, and construct new models. So I, um, yeah, I really, really um, am looking forward sort of uh, to the next uh, decade. And I'm really, I'm not like sitting around hoping you know more data comes in i'm just i'm excited about where planetary astronomy broadly speaking is going to be over the next 10 20 years yeah we have a, uh, have a question well it's sort of a modification of Stuart brands is saying cosmology which is what i do is a massive distraction and it's a drain on resources i'm going to turn that around he's he's a little bit grouchy here Stuart, come on. Don't, don't threaten my livelihood here, my friend. Uh, but I will ask the question, would you take a one-way trip to Mars as uh, upcoming guest Andy Weir, who's coming on the Into the Impossible mm -hmm. podcast very soon, wrote about in The Martian and almost happened to uh, the astronaut Watley. Uh, I, I want to know, would you take a trip to another planet, to Sedna, to Planet Nine, uh, what, what, would you, what would you most want to see up close and put your astronaut boots onto it? Absolutely not. Just absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I have very well-formed opinions about this. Like, I love the planets. Uh, Mars, I don't love as much uh, as the other ones. Uh, but, like, you know, I love doing what I do. But I have absolutely no interest uh, about uh, leaving Earth. And furthermore, I think, you know, it's important to not have delusions about uh, the Earth not being awesome. The the Earth is the the only home. As like I really feel this way. Uh, you know, we evolved on on this planet. And we have uh, millions of years of, of evolution, which cannot be 
which cannot be kind of uh, undone in a um, just because we we wish to explore now planet space exploration is obviously super important and i think having a manned mission to mars i think there will be one kind of in in our lifetime all of that you know is is worthwhile etc cetera, etc cetera. but i have i think you know uh if we're talking about dedication of resources etc cetera, etc cetera, um you know i i view climate change and generically the destruction of ecosystem on earth as a far more important uh problem than than any of this i think i don't think that we are going to be able to escape having to deal with large scale you know large scale deterioration of our life uh, as we know it if we do not address uh, or if we do not mitigate address do whatever we can uh, the the issues that we have on earth I know this is a long uh, way of saying I'm not moving to Mars um, yeah. but uh, you know I have <laughs> it's, I, it's just I'm it's surprising hearing you know because someone who wants to obliterate the Kuiper belt and destroy yep. the Oort cloud. <laughs> Maybe that's just a demonstration of your awesome prowess. Uh, but I would have thought, you know, we destroyed Earth, so at least and we have some practice on Earth. Then we move exactly. out in the solar system, go to Mars, destroy that, and then we go out to the Oort cloud, and then finally we'll learn how to take care of ourselves. Uh, we have a question from Matt Fox, who is the memes of destruction on Clubhouse. He is asking to ask a question. We have Sh uh, Sharena Rice and Matthew Meleg. I'm going to invite them up. They're going to ask you some quick questions, and then we're okay. going to close out the stream. So, Matthew, go ahead. You're on with Professor Konstantin Batijan of Caltech. Well, professors, thank you so much for doing this. My question is, based upon your experience, what do you think would be the best model for what this could be and the most likely model for what we could be observing? Thank you. Um. I'm presuming, presuming Matthew here is talking about the, the outer uh, solar system. The planet right? nine. I the planet nine. Yeah. Um, right, look, I mean, I think, I think that both the best model and the most likely model here are, are kind of the same thing. Uh, I believe that what we're seeing are the gravitational effects of, of a distant, uh, you know, five earth mass planet that, was being created together with you know baby neptune and baby uranus and then got in sort of scattered out by jupiter and saturn and had its orbit further modified by some effects such as passing stars um and now we are seeing the kind of long-term billion year accumulation of its gravitational potential and and we're kind of seeing that as the uh, as the signature um there are other explanations out there um, I think that, uh, you know, they are, you know, not necessarily completely, you know, implausible. They're just less likely. Mm -hmm. Last question, Clumhouse, comes from Sharina. Mm -hmm. Hello, this is Sharina, and my sister is Melina Rice. She is in Greg Wallen's lab at Yale, and she's yeah. working with tests to survey the whole sky to look for Planet Nine, looking at different speeds which a planet can move at different distances from the Earth. So I'm wondering what other people's perspectives are on this kind of method to survey the whole sky for Planet Nine. This is Sharina, and I am done speaking. 
All right. So the uh, if I understood the question correctly, the uh, the question was what other methods are there aside from tests uh, to to survey the entire sky? Mm -hmm. um, tests is certainly all right. And to give context, TESS is a space mission, right, which is looking predominantly looking for um, exoplanets. But, you know, you can take advantage uh, as uh, as Melina is doing of the fact that the pixels are actually quite big and you can shift and stack uh, to kind of increase your signal to noise uh, that way. So that's certainly one way to do it. The other way to do it is um, ground-based. And this is why uh, Vera Rubens is an exciting advancement that's coming up uh, in the next few years, where you just point a telescope up in the sky and, you know, start chopping, uh, start collecting data. And, of course, the Earth is nothing more than a, a spaceship that's going around on its trajectory, uh, if you will. So you know, eventually you cover a huge portion of the sky that way as well. Um, there have been other, um, there have been other near all sky surveys as well, mm -hmm. but in the visible spectrum uh, in which I think, you know, which is kind of the best bet for, for Planet Nine, um, I think Vera Rubin is a, is a great bet, but it would be so much cooler if just, uh, you know, we just found it in test data. I mean, that would be, that'd be really fun. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited about the work that, uh, that they're doing with tests. It's, it's really, it's clever and it's cool. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> I, I like it. Basically. I like it. Very good. Okay, everybody. I want to thank uh, everybody for tuning into the stream and for joining us in clubhouse. Uh, please do subscribe on YouTube. Dr. Brian Keating. If you have not already, I have wonderful guests coming up, including Sarah Seeger, as I mentioned, of MIT, the rival beavers on the East Coast, uh, to Caltech and uh, Professor Batijan's beavers on the West Coast. Uh, also, I have Steven Pinker coming up. I have a conversation with David Pogue speaking about climate change and the destruction of planet Earth. He wrote a book, How to Survive and Prepare for Climate Change, which is a hopeful book. Uh, and I urge people to look into that. And so stay tuned. We have amazing, wonderful guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearful host during this time of pandemic podcasting, signing off uh, and thanking Professor Constantine Fadijan. I hope you'll join us again, Constantine. It's really so much fun to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, man. We're all in love with your mind. Keep it up, my friend. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter, at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.